Um, so I pray, uh, as I have been praying for you all this week, that wherever you're at this morning, I've, I've been praying for my heart and I've been praying for your heart, that whenever you, whenever you find yourself taking a pause, and maybe wherever you find yourself this morning, sitting on your couch or at your kitchen table or or wherever you happen to be sitting, I pray this morning that your heart is more encouraged than discouraged, that you're more hopeful, that you're more able to praise the Lord with gratitude, even in the midst of all the challenges uh, that you might see in front of you. We're going to continue our series in Luke today, um, Luke 6, starting in verse 27. And so you can turn there in your Bibles. And as you're turning there, uh, let me just bring you up to speed. Last week we opened, uh, Luke opened for us this This is now what begins kind of a long string of Jesus' teaching. Uh, It'll stretch over the next number of weeks where he he starts rolling through uh, what the life in the kingdom is like and how it's different from the life that that all of his listeners were kind of used to. Uh, He he speaks a lot in parables and asks questions and to, to get people thinking differently. Um, he, He heals and encourages and blesses. And, and so uh, the last week kind of opened this long stretch of ministry for Jesus that Luke is unpacking. And we'll see that over the next couple of weeks. And part of Jesus' mission to seek and save the lost is to invite people into this kind of kingdom living, uh, helping unpack that the kingdom of God is, is different and, and part of that entails helping those with ears to hear that, that life in the kingdom is different than life in the normal world, the life that they're used to. So let's read the text together and then we'll dive in. Luke chapter 6, verses 27 through 36. This is Jesus speaking. He says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you'll be sons of the Most High. For He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Praise the Lord for His faithfulness in giving and preserving His Word. Holy Spirit of God, be our teacher today. Amen. Now, last week, uh, Jesus is talking about just because you have a little when you look around doesn't mean that God has abandoned you. And just because you're comfortable doesn't mean you're just good to go. God gives grace to the humble and provides for the needs of his children out of his supply. That's where we left off last week. 
And viewing ourselves and our stuff through the lens of the kingdom of God changes the way we see those things. In this passage, passage, Jesus turns our attention away from how we see ourselves and our stuff to how we look at others. If our natural bent with our stuff is toward comfort, our natural bent toward people, Jesus is pushing on, is self-interest and self-preservation. We operate often from a perspective of deserving. We are owed a measure of respect or personal space. We have rights. But as Jesus is reminding us that the kingdom operates differently than the natural world broken by sin, we are called as citizens of that kingdom to love and extend mercy to those who are undeserving. Because Jesus loves us and he extends mercy to you and to me who are undeserving. The command to love in this way flows from the gospel, which is the extending of the love of God to us in Christ Jesus. And so Jesus doesn't seem to shy away from this command to love our enemies. So we're going to look at this passage with these kinds of questions. Who we're called to love how we can demonstrate that love, and why. Why should we live lives and love like this? Hopefully we'll be able to see that not only are we called to this kind of kingdom living as citizens of the kingdom of God in Christ, but that these commands, these instructions, this way of life and way of love flows from the character of God himself. They're extensions of his mercy to us. The gospel of Jesus is at work in us and it informs and empowers this kind of life in the kingdom. So let's look at the words of Jesus here and what they have for us. The first question is this, who are we called to love in loving our enemies? Jesus opens up in verse 27 like this, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Now Jesus just finished talking about the poor And how that contracts with the rich or those who have much. The hungry versus the full. Those who are well-liked and those who are mistreated. And Jesus says here, But to you who hear, to all of you who are willing to hear this message that I'm giving, he says, love your enemies. See, disciples of Jesus, after hearing that it could actually be a good thing in the sight of God to be mistreated and persecuted, they might think, that's right, go ahead. Say what you want. And in fact, sometimes what begins as humility becomes kind of a humble brag. In fact, we might pride ourselves in playing the martyr. Look how much I'm hated. And most of the time, that just breeds disgust and anger and hatred in your heart toward those who mistreat and hate you. And Jesus steps in here right at the beginning after drawing this contrast between poor and rich and those who are mistreated and those who are treated well. And he kills that and he says, love your enemies. He, he breaks down that us-them thing real quick. Don't just pretend to love them, he says. Love them. Actually love them. And the word here for love, translated in English, in the Greek, the Greek word is agapeo. It's agape. The kind of love is the love that is offered to the undeserving. It's self-sacrificial love. There's other words for love. Phileo is another word for love in the, in the Greek. It's, it's kind of the felt love, the 
The brotherly love, sometimes it's called, it's a fondness. It's the more emotional, yeah, man, I'm feeling the love, right? But agape, agapeo is a choice. It's intentional. It's, it's not to say that it's unfeeling. It's not, it's not without feeling, but it's not primarily emotional. It's volitional. Volitional means an act of the will. So Jesus opens this passage when he says, love your enemies. He's saying this, choose a posture of self-sacrifice toward those who hate you. <laughs> choose a posture a heart posture, a, a, a humility, a compassion, and a love toward your enemies. It's, it's volitional. It's choosing it toward those who would do you harm. And then Jesus goes on and describes these people who hate you, these enemies. Look at what he says. Verse 27, he says, those who hate you, those who curse you and abuse you, verse 28, those who strike you and take from you, verse 29, those who beg and borrow from you without returning. Verse 30. Now perhaps this makes you a little uncomfortable, but these are some of the things we need to regard with humility and some of the people we're to regard with humility. Jesus is calling us to choose to love them. That is the plain reading of the words of Jesus from Luke 6 here. And in theory, I think most of us can nod our heads in agreement, generally. Yes, it does seem like a good idea, a Jesus-like idea to show love to people, even and especially towards those who are far from God or those who might be hostile to the message of Jesus, those who are suffering from the burdens and brokenness because of the sin in their own lives or the sin committed against them. Yes, it seems like a very Jesus thing to do, to love someone who's unlovable. You know, hurting people hurt people. So loving hurting people makes theoretical sense. But I, I don't think I have to spend too much time convincing you in theory from the perspective of a Christian, why loving people, even enemies, is a good idea, in theory. Now, if you're unconvinced of that, hold on, we'll, we'll get there. But I think the biggest wrestle for most of us is not the idea that loving our enemies is something we're called to do. It's actually doing that. We can get there in theory. Yes, Jesus wants me to love those who mistreat me. But what does that actually look like? How do we get there? And so some questions rise to the surface for me. Who is hardest right now in my life to love? Now, are they just hard to love or are they actively against me? Who is that for you? Who's hardest right now in your life to love? And why is that? Is it just because they're challenging? Your personalities are different? Or is it actually because they are actively working against you? And the next question, so, okay, I can visualize who that person is. What does it look like to actually show love to that person? Maybe you need a safe distance. Maybe there needs to be a, 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 some, some safety and some security there. But, but truly and humbly praying for and desiring the Lord to work in them for their good. Understanding that we should love people, okay, fine. 
The question is, how do we actually do that? What does that actually look like? Which leads me into my next question. We're called to love our enemies. Who are we called to love? Our enemies. Jesus outlines who those people are. But the question is how? And so then he outlines, leads me to the second question. How do we demonstrate this kind of love? Well, there are some things we want to look at. What does this mean and what this does not mean? So let's look at some of the details Jesus gives us. He says, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Have you heard the phrase, kill them with kindness? Now, I think that phrase can be misused a little bit. True kindness and goodness doesn't play gotcha with someone, but legitimately doing good, being kind and generous to someone who has not been kind to you. In Romans chapter 12, Paul references Proverbs 25 when he says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. What is, what is Paul saying? Well, to the one who hates you, who mistreats you, you could poke back. Or, or, like pouring water on a fire, you can disarm his anger, not by responding with anger, but by responding with kindness, with mercy, by meeting a, a practical need, by loving him, dare I say it. And what it does is it, it turns the anger back on that person. It doesn't take it, it, it turns it back. Responding with kindness, it disarms the anger. Proverbs 15.1 says, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. When someone responds with anger, you can respond with softness and generosity and kindness. Now, will kindness and goodness always turn away wrath and anger from someone? No. Proverbs are not promises. But there is a principle at work here, and Jesus is saying, strive for goodness to those who don't like you, being good to them and kind to them. He goes on. He says, bless those who curse you. Don't get into a back and forth cursing match, right? This is sibling rivalry 101. Any one of you with um, uh, kids at home now all the time, 24-7, 365, not going out, not going to school, I'm sure if your house is like ours, that the sibling rivalry, the he said, she said, the he hit me first, he called me a name first, she did that first, that's probably happening in your world. Maybe a lot more than normal, right? When the curse comes and the anger comes, responding with blessing? Which leads me to a question. What does a blessing look like? I think Jesus outlines that. Look what he says next. He says, pray for those who abuse you. Now, this is one I want to clarify on, on what Jesus does mean and what he does not mean. Here's what I think Jesus does not mean. That the abused is supposed to just sit there and only pray. Notice that there is no only in this passage. All throughout the scriptures, the mistreatment of another human being, for any reason, is roundly condemned as evil and sinful. Particularly egregious is a husband's mistreatment and abuse of his wife. The clear biblical commands to husbands are to love cherish, care for, and serve their wives with understanding and compassion and gentleness. 
And I know that women can be abusive to men as well. Someone who is abusive toward another, or towards a spouse, or towards a child, or anyone else, is not to be indulged, but corrected. And within the church, that means discipline. And the one being abused is not being unsubmissive when they seek help from the church or from legal authorities. An abused person should find help and safety from godly women and men in the church as well as other necessary civil recourse. Jesus is not saying, stay there, take it, oh, but pray about it. He's not saying just do that when he says, pray for those who abuse you. If you have questions or concerns about what I've said, please feel free to reach out. But what Jesus does mean, I think, is that we are to pray for anyone who would threaten or mistreat or abuse us. Because hurting people do hurt people. And so someone that is abusive is likely broken. That's not an excuse for any of their activity. It's a reality that they too need the work of the Spirit to bring repentance and healing. So when Jesus says, pray for those who abuse you, he's not saying only pray. So please hear me in that. If that's you, if you're in a situation that is dangerous, please know we encourage you to get help that's necessary and we want to be the kinds of people and place as a church, as individuals, you as neighbors and as Christians who have friends and neighbors around you who might be in dangerous situations. We want to be these kinds of people to offer help and safety. And at the same time, we want to position our hearts to be a posture of humility because brokenness of sin is real. And so we go to our Father and we pray for them and for us in the process because we need the Spirit to bring repentance and healing. Let's keep going because I think it actually gets you know, layered. It gets dicier. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, Jesus says, offer the other also. And the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Now, I know we probably don't use cloaks and tunics very often, but, but I think you could probably make the understanding. But wait a second. Wait a second. Is Jesus saying in this passage, just roll over, become a human doormat, never defend yourself? The, the word here translated as cheek, whoever strikes you on the cheek, could more accurately, could be more accurately understood as jaw. The idea here is not just a slap in the face. It's a right hook to the jaw. And the attitude that Jesus is speaking to here is to not retaliate. He's not saying become a doormat. But he's saying don't fight fire with fire. In the same way when someone hates you and speaks ill of you, if they strike you, the response is, in love is to not strike back. Now again, Jesus does not mean that you should continue to put yourself in a place of being abused or mistreated or in this case, taken advantage of. If possible, to guard yourself and find safety, that's a good thing. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. Further, I don't think Jesus is saying that there's no place for self-defense or even more importantly, self-sacrificial defense of others. Love is often demonstrated when one puts themselves in harm's way to protect someone more vulnerable and that is a noble and godly response. 
I think what Jesus does mean is that our attitude, our posture toward others, even and especially when they are hostile, is not one of retaliation and vengeance and anger. Instead, it's a willingness for the sake of mercy, we'll get to mercy here in a second, to take a second hit, to guard against retaliation, even if it means that person's still going to swing. Leon Morris in his commentary on Luke's gospel was really helpful for me in unpacking this. He says this, Once again, it is the spirit of the saying that's important. If Christians took this one, turn the other cheek is what he's speaking of, absolutely literally, there would soon be a class of saintly paupers owning nothing and another of prosperous idlers and thieves. It is not this that Jesus is seeking. He's not seeking idleness and endorsing those to just, well, take what they want and and steal from you. No, no, here, Jesus is seeking, according to Leon Morris, a readiness among his followers to give and give and give. It's a posture of not retaliation, but of generosity, a willingness to give up self and comfort for the sake of Mercy, And then Jesus sums it all up under this big umbrella. Verse 31, he says this, And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. You've heard this before, right? It's referred to as the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do to you. And what's funny about this is that this is often communicated in Merely human terms. In fact, most of the time, if you just Google search this, you'll get some scripture passages. But most of the time, it's disconnected from Jesus' words at all. It doesn't say, do unto others, line Jesus. It says, like, the golden rule, and people put it on, you know, mugs and plaques for their living rooms. It's, it's often spoken of in merely human terms. Because here's the reality. If human beings followed this rule of doing to others what you would hope that they would do to you, by and large, if they actually followed that rule, by and large, their interpersonal relationships would likely be better. Their business dealings would be more fair. Their opportunities for conflict and misunderstanding would diminish. It is possible to be nice to other people without any spiritual power. This can be a universal human truism, right? It's, okay. you, it's possible for people like Bill and Ted to just be excellent to each other. But I have to ask, is it enough to be nice or to have people be nice to you? When asked if he'd rather be feared or loved, famously, Michael Scott replied, easy, I want people to be afraid of how much they love me. We laugh, but there's a reality there, isn't there? But there's more to what Jesus is getting at here than just human beings being nice to each other, humans being good humans, people being liked. I would argue that it's actually much more than just general kindness, that we actually don't want people to be just be nice to us. We want them to know us. And we want them to love us. 
And the problem is that if they really know us like we know ourselves, then we can clearly see why they would have no reason to actually love us. And that's why I think if we're honest, this is a really challenging verse. As you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. That's, it's a lot harder than the coffee mug would say. It's a lot harder than it looks. So ask yourself the question, how do you wish others would love you? How, how, how would you like other people to love you? This should drive the response to the question of how we love others, how we respond to those who wound us and lash out at us and harm us. If the roles were reversed and we were the ones acting out, we were lashing out, wouldn't we desire mercy rather than retaliation? And as we said before, I believe it's possible to be nice people outside of Jesus. So what makes it different? Because I think it's more than just being a nice person. And Jesus says there's absolutely more to it. That's the final question. Why? Why do we love like this? Look at verse 32 through 34. He says, If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend, if you give to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. Anyone can love someone who loves them back. Anyone can be nice and do good to those who do good to you. Anyone can lend or give to someone with the expectation that they will reciprocate. Right? You invite someone over, have dinner, and in the back of your head you're like, maybe they'll invite us over. And Jesus says, anybody can do that. What credit is that to you? Anybody can do that. That's nothing special. And then he says in verse 35, he reiterates his, where he started. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. This kind of love does good and expects nothing in return. Because the better reward, Jesus says, is something intangible and eternal. He says, you will be sons of the Most High. For He, the Most High, is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Now, I don't think this means if you love in this way, then you will be sons of the Most High. This isn't an if-then statement. Jesus, I think, is saying that those who love this way show themselves to be sons and daughters, children of the Most High, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. Right? You're showing yourself, if you love in this way, you're showing yourself to be the son or the daughter of the Most High. Hi. Why? Because he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. That's, that's me and that's you. Did you catch that? The kind of sacrificial love that Jesus is calling us to, if we have ears to hear, is exemplified by the love of the Father toward you and me. We are the ungrateful and the evil, and God has shown his mercy to us in sending Jesus. Romans 5 
verses 6 through 8, Paul says this, While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though for, perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then in verse 10, Paul continues. He says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Jesus is the proof, the example of the love of God toward those who hate him, those who curse him, those who strike him, who steal from him and then beg him for help. That's what we do. And God is merciful. This is the heart of the message of the gospel, that you and I are completely undeserving. We're not neutral here. We are enemies of God. And for no reasons that we can come up with internally of ourselves, God the Father, in his mercy, sends Jesus the Son to redeem us by exchanging his perfect life for our wickedness. It is all mercy. The call to sacrificial love and mercy flows from the character and nature and love of the Father to us in Christ. He is merciful to us, we who are undeserving. So we are now called as his children to extend that mercy of the Father to others who are undeserving. So the question becomes then, why is this so hard for us? We see who we're supposed to, to love. We've given some, given, been given some instructions or some indications as to how that works, to how do we bless that person and, and give generously and pray for them. We understand why. Because God is merciful to us in Christ. We're called to then extend that mercy that it flows not just to us, but through us to others. We get that. So why is it so hard? I think it's hard for, for two possible reasons. There might be more. But one, I think we often think we are deserving. And two, we, we forget the mercy of God. What do I mean by that? I think it's true of many of us that we think we are deserving. And so we become easily offended. We don't even have to get all the way to someone taking our stuff or hitting us in the face. Much smaller offenses cause us to respond with annoyance. And so we tend to be dismissive of people because we feel we deserve better. We're entitled to better. A skewed and inflated sense of self actually hinders our ability to respond with humility because we feel like we shouldn't be treated the way that we're being treated that others might think poorly of us and treat us accordingly. So instead, we beat them to the punch by thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought. But there's a great quote from Charles Spurgeon that I read this week uh, that kind of puts it all in perspective. He says, If any man thinks ill of you, do not be angry with him, for you are worse than he thinks you to be. And that is absolutely true. It's accurate, isn't it? 
See, we are addicted to self-justification. We are addicted to our rights, what is owed us. And I'm not talking about constitutional rights as Americans. I know that can get a little dicey in this time of like governments and what can they do to us and what I got rights. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about how we see ourselves and our posture towards others. When we, we often operate as if things are owed to us. But the call of Jesus is a call to lay down our rights for the sake of others. It requires us to self-assess with different eyes. And when we see ourselves rightly, we are immediately reminded of our great need for mercy and God's kind mercy to us in Jesus. So we need to have, by God's Spirit, our sense of entitlement dismantled. We're not deserving of God's mercy. We're not deserving of the kindness from another person. And yet God is merciful to us. And any count of mercy or kindness or love that we get from other people even is an extension of God's kindness through them to us. All of it is grace and undeserving. And that leads me to the second reason that living this way is often hard for us. It's easy to forget the mercy of God. I mean, do you think about sometimes the the mercy of God to redeem you, the cost paid to rescue your soul? Like we get so far past it that we, it becomes old news. But we sing of it often. Uh, A song we'll sing later with Kyle. At least I think we will. I think that's the song he picked out, hopefully. Uh, We sing it often. uh, This verse, what riches of kindness he lavished on us. His blood was the payment. His life was the cost. We stood neath a debt we could never afford. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. We stood beneath a debt we could never afford to repay. Do we remember that? But God. Now, we don't wallow in our sin. We don't stay there, but we remember the debt that was owed, and the mercy on display in Jesus to redeem us. And out of that, we don't, when we, re, when we remember our, our brokenness and we remember the mercy of God, we don't respond with arrogance. We respond with gratitude and humility. Thank you that you would show me your mercy. This is by the Spirit's work in us, and it, and it reorients our thinking, the way we think about ourselves and the way we look at others. So as Jesus welcomes us into his kingdom, he's reminding us that the kingdom operates differently than we expect. So it looks different to the world. As Jesus' disciples, we are called to love and extend mercy to those who are undeserving because Jesus loves us and Jesus extends mercy to you and to me who are undeserving. And as we sing, praise the Lord, his mercy is more. Stronger than darkness, new every morn. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Brothers and sisters, would you join me in remembering the mercy of God shown to us and then turning that loose in the way that we position ourselves, our hearts and our intentions and our actions and our words toward those who might dislike us or hate us or wound us, that we might display the mercy of Christ that's been so wildly and greatly on display in our lives. Would you pray with me?
Father, as we confessed when we began, there are so many things that we have done and so many of things that we have left undone that warrant a confession. And we're thankful for the words from 1 John that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Not because we've cleaned ourselves up. Not because we've gotten our list of sins all lined out and we got it all figured out. No, you are faithful and just to forgive us because of the perfection of Jesus. On his account, we plead for forgiveness. And on his account, we are forgiven. I pray that the mercy of God would be seen in our lives even this week. That it would be a work of your, the kindness of your spirit to bring to our attention the mercy and grace of God on display in our lives. And that would stir our hearts not toward arrogance, but towards humility. And from our lips and from our hands would come self-sacrificial love. Would you help us? Would you grow us in this as a people? This is a work of your Spirit, and we need you to do it. Would you encourage our hearts as we sing in just a few minutes? And Spirit of God, would you do the work this week And release us as a people who love like this. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.